You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Rebunking a provocation, a spot report on the cyber phase of a hybrid war, Google stops a judgment panda campaign against U.S. government Gmail users, Symantec continues to track the origins and uses of the Daxon backdoor, CISA updates its Conti alert, Josh Ray from Accenture has tips on Log4j, our guest is Cheaton Konecki of Shift Left with strategies for reducing attackability, and law northeast of the Pecos as an alleged member of our evil is arraigned in Texas. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 10th, 2022. The Russian advance into Ukraine remains difficult at best, stalled at worst. Russia's Belarusian ally seems to have grown increasingly reluctant to join the kinetic fight, although it's providing aid in cyberspace. Negotiations between the Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers began in Turkey yesterday, but without much result. That's to be expected. It's noteworthy that in the opening days of their invasion, both Putin and Lavrov had made Ukrainian surrender a precondition of negotiation— Moscow has clearly relaxed that hard line. Western intelligence services, particularly in the U.S. and U.K., have been unusually open and forthcoming in their discussion of Russian actions against Ukraine. Much of that openness has been devoted to what some journalists have called pre-bunking, hitting the credibility of disinformation before it's found legs and gained traction. Yesterday's warning by the White House that Russia may be planning to use chemical weapons seems to be another case of pre-bunking a building provocation the Kremlin may be preparing. Russian sources have claimed that Ukraine, probably with American assistance, has been preparing both biological and chemical weapons, and those claims have been seconded and amplified by Chinese media. Western sources see this as an incipient provocation— The Atlantic Council describes the early stages of this information operation as the Russian foreign ministry claims that Ukraine had intended to use the nuclear plants at Chernobyl and Zaporizhia for nuclear provocations. That same ministry confirmed that it had proof that Ukraine, with U.S. support, had tried to destroy evidence of Ukraine's ongoing biological warfare program. White House Press Secretary Saki tweeted a U.S. response to Russian allegations denying that any such biological or chemical weapons program existed and pointing out Russia's use of its Novichok nerve agent in the attempted assassination of a GRU defector 
and its support of the Assad regime's use of chemical agents against internal enemies in Syria. She also noted that the disinformation fits Moscow's style of provocation. Quote, also, Russia has a track record of accusing the West of the very violations that Russia itself is perpetrating. In December, Russia falsely accused the U.S. of deploying contractors with chemical weapons in Ukraine. End quote. Nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons are the three traditional classes of weapons of mass destruction, whose use has been either restricted or, in the case of biological weapons, prohibited entirely by international law. At the outset of his war, Mr. Putin alluded to NATO and Ukrainian nuclear ambitions as offering partial grounds for what he characterized as a defensive, protective military operation. The addition of chemical and biological weapons to the list of Russian charges is significant. Russia may or may not have a biological arsenal, and if it does, using it will probably prove difficult, perhaps difficult to the point of impossibility, but it would be more easily deniable than a chemical attack. But Russia certainly does have a chemical arsenal and a well-articulated doctrine for that arsenal's use. The disinformation effort charging Ukraine with preparation for chemical and biological war may be designed to afford a pretext for the use of chemical weapons in particular. Russia's war against Ukraine has yet to see the widespread and disabling cyber attacks many had predicted, but cyber operations continue at a low but constant level. Both sides seem to be making use of regular intelligence services as well as irregulars. The Ukrainian irregulars have tended to be hacktivists, drawn to Kiev's cause and at Kiev's invitation. The Russian irregulars have tended to be familiar underworld privateers who've long operated at Moscow's sufferance. Fox News, citing sources in the U.S. intelligence community, reports that cyber attacks against U.S. companies active in the liquefied natural gas sector conducted two weeks before the invasion of Ukraine may have been battle space preparation. CISA, the report says, is presently working to confirm that this is indeed what the attacks represented. Researchers at ReSecurity had earlier made a similar claim. Chinese cyber espionage operations have lately taken a close interest in European foreign ministries and aid organizations working to bring assistance to Ukraine. There are signs that this activity may be coordinated with Russia's campaign. Google researchers identify three state actors particularly engaged in collecting against Ukraine and governments sympathetic to Kyiv. Quote, Fancy Bear of APT-28, a threat actor attributed to Russia's GRU, has conducted several large credential phishing campaigns targeting UKR.net users. UKRnet is a Ukrainian media company. The phishing emails are sent from a large number of compromised accounts, non-Gmail and Google, and include links to attacker-controlled domains. Ghostwriter, UNC1151, a Belarusian threat actor, has conducted credential phishing campaigns over the past week against Polish and Ukrainian government and military organizations. Mustang Panda, or Temp.hex, a Chinese-based threat actor, targeted European entities with lures related to the Ukrainian invasion. End quote. Google also notes that nuisance-level distributed denial-of-service attacks have continued to affect Ukrainian government sites. Activists who identify themselves with the Anonymous Collective and who've taken up Ukraine's cause are tweeting, security affairs reports, about various website defacements and text campaigns they're operating 
in the hope of degrading Russian morale. HS Today writes that Anonymous claims to now control over 400 Russian camera feeds. It's using the compromised feeds to distribute anti-propaganda to open eyes of Russian civilians. Companies have been taking measures to protect themselves from feared and expected Russian cyber attack. The large French bank BNP Paribas is one example. Evidently concerned with the possibility of insider threats, the bank has excluded its Russian workers from internal networks. Security Week reports that Google claims to have blocked a Chinese espionage operation directed against Gmail users within the U.S. government. Shane Huntley of Google's Threat Analysis Group tweeted, quote, In February, we detected an APT31 phishing campaign targeting high-profile Gmail users affiliated with the U.S. government. 100% of these emails were automatically classified as spam and blocked by Google. End quote. APT31 is also known as Zirconium and Judgment Panda. Symantec researchers continue to investigate the Daxon backdoor used by Chinese threat actors. SC Magazine cites Vikram Thacker of Symantec Threat Intelligence as saying that they've tracked the tool to a persona they're watching in Chinese forums. Symantec has posted updates to its research in two parts, one describing Daxon's driver initialization, networking, key exchange, and backdoor functionality, the other covering its communications and networking features. Daxon has been used quietly for a decade. CISA has revised the alert about the Conti ransomware gang it issued last September. Yesterday's updates include the addition of 98 domain names to CISA's list of indicators of compromise associated with Conti attacks. The new information does not appear derived from material provided by a Ukrainian researcher who succeeded in infiltrating the gang. Bleeping Computer notes that, despite the reputational and possibly operational hits Conti took from that infiltration, the gang hasn't trimmed its sales. Quote, Since the beginning of March, Conti listed on its website more than two dozen victims in the U.S., Canada, Germany, Switzerland, U.K., Italy, Serbia, and Saudi Arabia. End quote. And finally, the U.S. Department of Justice announced yesterday that a major defendant in the case of R. Evil Sodinakibi ransomware operations has been arraigned in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. One Yaroslav Vasinsky, a Ukrainian national of 22 tender years, is alleged to have accessed the internal computer networks of several victim companies and deployed Sodinokibi R-Evil ransomware to encrypt the data on the computers of victim companies. One of the alleged victims was Kaseya, and that incident affected a number of the software company's customers. Mr. Vasinski, who received his invitation to Club Fed courtesy of extradition from Poland, is charged with conspiracy to commit fraud and related activity in connection with computers, damage to protected computers, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. If convicted of all counts, he faces a total penalty of 115 years in prison. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, 
and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Software development teams often struggle with prioritizing which vulnerabilities require their immediate attention and resources and which can be safely put off. Cheetan Konecki is founder and chief technology officer at software security firm ShiftLeft, and he believes companies need to take an outside-looking-in approach that puts defenders in the attacker's shoes and determines how likely a vulnerability is to be successfully targeted, a process he calls reducing attackability. Today, if you look at how things are done, often an application is assessed to identify vulnerabilities. And these vulnerabilities are further on categorized into high, medium, and low severity. And often engineers try to sort order and pick those that matter the most, which is the high severity ones to address and mitigate. In certain cases, they are many, many such high severity vulnerabilities. Because when you examine things inside out, what essentially happens is every vulnerability that is of high risk is categorized as high risk. But in certain cases, you need to further look to see whether a particular exploiter or an attacker can touch that vulnerability in order to trigger that exploit. When I use the word touch, it actually means, can they call or invoke an API on your application? And after they invoke the API, can they send a data point through that pathway of the application in order to touch that vulnerability and further on exploit it? And what I just said in summary means, is your vulnerability that is deemed as high severe exposed for an attacker to firstly enumerate and secondly, exploit. 
So think of this as a filter that looks for these two characteristics in your application, where it identifies something of high severity, meaning that you're using, say, Log4j. And if you're using Log4j, is there any API endpoint that would enable an attacker to send a parameter that is touching or invoking Log4j without being filtered, sanitized, transformed, et cetera, et cetera? Help me understand why organizations come up short when it comes to doing this sort of process on their own. What what are the blind spots that they typically have? There are many such blind spots, but you know, just to try to identify the most critical ones, when it comes to application security, there is often no incentive mapped for engineers to go triage, fix, and improve the security posture off. Often engineers are hired to write code, code which produces value to your customers, and that value is incrementally provided through features, new releases, and so on and so forth. So when you have a satisfied customer, the company is generating revenue, and as a consequence, an engineer gets incentives as bonus payouts, stock grants, equity options, etc. You never see or we've not heard of an organization focusing on security, saying that I am going to provide or map the incentives to the number of bugs that are identified or security incidents that have been resolved and triaged in the associated application. So given that all of us as engineers typically mostly are inspired and mapped to incentives, and if there are no incentives, we don't have any reason to go and triage and resolve these issues. Secondly, majority of these tools, you know, there's a broad spectrum in the world of application security from uh, code analysis to runtime. Now, when each of these tools are producing alerts and all these alerts are plenty without effective ways to prioritize, that would lead to alert fatigue. Now, you could imagine an engineer who's not incented has to go and essentially look at all these alerts and figure out what matters. So as a consequence, it gets left behind. If it gets left behind, it turns into an exploit in production. And then you work backwards in urgency to go and resolve. So this is one of the reasons why we have to fundamentally change the way we prioritize security in the early stages of the life cycle. That's Cheetan Konecki from Shift Left. A program note, I recently recorded a career notes segment with Cheetan Konecki. Be sure to check that out as well. And joining me once again is Josh Ray. He is a managing director and global cyber defense lead at Accenture Security. Josh, always great to have you back on the program. Uh, You know, as you and I record this, we are about a month or so, give or take, uh, with the uh, revelation that we are going to be dealing with the Log4j vulnerability. And I just wanted to touch base with you now that it's we've had a little distance between us and that initial discovery. What sort of perspective is it giving you and your folks there uh, in terms of uh, this kind of vulnerability? Yeah, Dave, and, and first, thanks for having me back. And, you know, this this Log4J uh, vulnerability is one of the nastier ones I've seen in my career. But, you know, what's been really, I think, a positive takeaway for me is that the community in, as a whole 
both public and private sector have really rallied together to to take this on. And the client conversations that we've been having have been have been really good. I mean, they're they're making good progress. I think people are are you know applying the right level of, of attention to this. And teams, you know, especially working over the holidays, have been um, really working hard to to mitigate this. You know, this is really one of these things that takes a, a very holistic and agile approach. And what we've been talking to clients most about, not just on the vulnerability management side, but really from a if you're thinking about it from a breach readiness, threat hunting, and incident response standpoint, some of the things that you really need to kind of take into consideration. So as much as anything today, you know, what I wanted to do for, for the listenership is just provide almost a PSA of, you know, five things that we've been thinking about or, or talking to clients about that, you know, hopefully people can use in their own environment or just to kind of help organize their approach more moving forward. All right. Well, let's jump in together here. Uh, take us down that list. The, the first is really kind of the notion of eliminating the tax surface, right? Obviously, this is very difficult to do and has to do with removing the vulnerability and patching it or implementing those, you know, compensating mitigations, right? Using things like your phone scanners and working with your vendors appliances to, to make sure that you get that right level of visibility and, and mitigation up front. But this is really, you know, again, the attack surface piece starting with externally facing devices, both on-prem and in the cloud, and really working your way from there. The next piece is really about control, right? So using hardening tools and configurations to control those uh, um, attacker actions from from being successful post-exploitation. So restricting egress and recursive DNS on servers is very important, especially because Actors will attempt to leverage that, you know, web application uh, servers to to resolve and call out to download second and third tertiary code. So restricting that network access is is very important, um, especially looking at things like hardening and, and updating operating systems, legacy systems that you know will increase your exposure. This is especially true for Log4j, where where production workloads running in the cloud, native infrastructure or Linux servers really, you know, lack that that visibility um, for protections that you might have, you know, under EDR. So making sure that those mm. things are, are locked down as well from a control standpoint. Mm. What else? Well, now we kind of start to get into that monitoring hunt and, and kind of exercise move. So you, we've kind of covered down on, you know, eliminating the attack surface, controlling and hardening, hardening the environment. Now, you know, how do we gain that situational awareness? And log and analyze everything is what we say. So, you know, you can't eliminate that you can't eliminate or, or control, right? Having that situational awareness on your network is absolutely critical and making sure that systems that lack visibility or, or that centralized, you know, logging, making sure that those things are all getting centralized in some type of EDR or SIM. Um, you know, many, many of our clients are struggling um, with this as their, their Linux production workloads were running on, you know, end of life operating systems that really you know, couldn't be supported in their EDR and didn't have good logging enabled, such as like, you know, Audit D or such like that. So hmm. then being able to perform a, a really a strong forensic review of the servers of um, of the identified exposure period uh, for post-exploitation actions. So that, that's kind of that monitoring piece that I think is talked about a lot, but sometimes, you know, not executed uh, with the right level of diligence. And then we move into this notion of hunt, right? For everything that you can eliminate or control or monitor using the threat intelligence approach, right? So 
active hunting, you know, looking for signs of post-exploitation, such as, you know, privilege escalation, lateral movement. Um, some of the things that our Cypher team, you know, has seen include, you know, insulation of web shells, reverse shells, um, insulation of miners, and then, you know, other instances of, say, like cobalt strike or, or other types of, of PowerShell activity. Really, but again, it's, it's about kind of actively looking in your environment because as we've seen, especially with things like Log4j, the actor, you know, within hours of that proof of concept code becoming available, there was active scanning looking for vulnerable systems. So you need to be on your front foot driving that active hunt program. And then finally, really, it's about exercising. So making, your, making sure that your teams have that muscle memory and are ready to go, leveraging that crisis simulations and, and purple team exercises, and then using those consequent-driven scenarios that really stretch outside the security organization and require organizational-wide, company-wide response uh, and mitigation activities. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, when something like this happens, when a log4j hits the airwaves, you know, so it's it's both high impact but high profile as well. Does that present an opportunity for the defenders out there? I mean, I'm curious, do you have folks coming to you as a, as a provider and say, hey, you know, log4j is... Uh, is bad, but the good news is this has got the attention of my board, and they have greenlit that budget I've been asking for for all this time. Yeah, I mean, they do say never let you know a, a good crisis go to waste, but I mean, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that I mean, you can look across the industry now, and you can point to the crisis of the day. So mm. you know, if you're waiting for the next big log for Jade to, you know, to happen, so you can get that budget approved. I would say responsible business owners and folks that, you know, that now see this as part of their, you know, the broader risks that they need to manage uh, as part of, you know, operating a, a business uh, for their stakeholders. They understand that, you know, these organizations, your security organizations need to be properly funded. But absolutely having that crisis management approach and that notion where you're able to bring together multiple stakeholders in the business to kind of achieve the, the you know, get back to, to operational normalcy, I think is absolutely critical. And uh, that's that in and of itself is an opportunity that should not be missed um, by the security teams. All right. Well, Josh Ray, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.